Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. Hear these words now from the book that we love. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with, it, with seed in its fruit. And you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth and faith and love, that we may be obedient to your will and live always for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You can be seated. In October 1898, I know that was a while ago, Princeton University invited a Dutch theologian to give its annual Stone Lecture series. And the topic for this theologian was Calvinism. There were six talks on the topic of Calvinism. If you've heard that word before, don't be, don't be afraid. Uh, how, the content of these lectures wasn't limited to just the five points, which we often think of as Calvinism and the doctrine of salvation. But it, and it was broader even than the whole breadth of Protestant Reformed theology or any individual tenant of that. Instead, what this theologian did is he argued that Calvinism was a comprehensive life system, or what he liked to call a world-in-life view, that it was a lens, the theology of Calvinism was actually a lens, like spectacles, through which we could view and should view all of life. And to be sure, he lectured on the topic of religion, but interestingly, he also discussed a variety of other topics, including politics, science and art and how Calvinism as a lens affects and, and helps us view all of those things. The name of this man was Abraham Kuyper. If you've never heard that name, it's a shame. He's a good dude. You can look him up, Google him uh, on the Google machine, maybe this afternoon since the Eagles aren't playing. You've got plenty of time. But Abraham Kuyper, if you don't know or if you know anything about Kuyper, you'll know that this was fitting for him to give uh, this series of lectures. He was not only a theologian, and a pastor in the Netherlands, but he was also a politician and a journalist and an educator. And during the course of his life, he actually established a denomination. He started a political party. He served for many years as a member of parliament in the Netherlands and also served even as one term as the prime minister of that country. But that wasn't enough. He also founded a university and began a newspaper for which he often wrote. He was a busy guy. It's the one takeaway. But Abraham Kuyper, see, he was deeply convinced that as followers of Jesus, we, he had a responsibility to transform 
every sphere of culture, to nudge every aspect of life in the direction of bringing glory to God, the creator and ruler of all things. And maybe his most famous saying that sums this up well uh, is a quote. I didn't actually include this in the reflections quote. I, I have some others up there we'll look at later, but here's what he said. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's a powerful quote. When we launched into uh, this new ministry year just a month ago or so and started this sermon series in Genesis, Jim, who's our lead pastor, if this is your first time with us, he mentioned that we're going to be going through uh, the series of Genesis and we're going to be discussing issues and topics uh, with the purpose of developing what we believe to be an orthodox, biblical, Christian worldview, that lens through which to view all of life. And I mentioned Abraham Kuyper here in this Stone Lecture series in particular because I love some of the things that he says in that very first lecture. In that first lecture on Princeton's campus, he said that any life system, whether it's Christian or pagan or another religion or otherwise, requires an answer or an insight into three fundamental relations of human life. The first is man's relation to God. The second, man's relation to man. And third, man's relation to the world. And so, so far in the opening chapter of Genesis, we're still in the first chapter. We'll be not even finishing that up today. We're still going to do a couple more sermons in, in this back half of Genesis chapter 1. But even in this very first chapter of Genesis, we have already touched on the first two of these fundamental relations. Man's relation to God could be summarized by saying that he is our creator and we are his creatures. And because that is true, we have an obligation to him and we're made for relationship with him. Man's relation to man, the second fundamental relation, that we are created in the image of God and therefore we are all equals, regardless of skin color, ethnicity, nationality, gender, education level, et cetera, et cetera, any other socioeconomic indicator you want to tag on. We're all equals in the image of God. In our passage here this morning, we now turn our attention for the first time to the third of these fundamental relations, man's or humanity's relation to the world. In verse 28, what I just read a moment ago, God said to Adam and Eve, our first parents, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, in this verse, our creator, he gives his creatures a job. He gives them work to do. I know it's a Sunday, and for most of you, this is not a work day, so I'm sorry I'm bringing up work, but God gives us a job, a divine vocation, a holy calling to rule over the terrestrial world. And many theologians, including Kuiper and others that followed after him, they call this idea of dominion, which we're going to talk about, the cultural mandate, the cultural mandate. And to be sure, in these verses, there are uh, major implications in these verses for how followers of Jesus should care for creation and how we should steward the environment. I'm actually not going to discuss those things this morning, and Jim is actually, gonna, when he comes back, is going to talk about those in a couple of weeks. He's going to talk specifically about environmentalism and what a biblical Christian view of ecology looks like. Uh, and so my focus this morning is going to be on the cultural mandate which is less about preservation and more about development. What does it look like for Christians to continue God's creative work in the world? 
to do what God did, to take raw material and to rearrange that material to create out of it good things that were not there before. What does it look like for us as Christians to participate in that and to do that? To be sure, uh, a library full of books could be and has been written in the numerous journal articles, many of which I have read at different times, about this topic of the cultural mandate. And so certainly I'm not going to be able to get into every uh, nook and cranny of this, but I'm excited to share this with you uh, this morning. It is a topic that I love and enjoy reading about and thinking about, and I only have 30 minutes, so here we go. So from here I want to discuss just four facts about the cultural mandate. Four facts. Number one, it's occasion. Number two, it's nature. Number three, it's aim. And number four, it's mood. It's occasion, nature, aim, and mood. So first, the occasion of the cultural mandate is pre-fall. We're in Genesis 1. We have not yet got to Genesis chapter 3, which is where Adam and Eve uh, disobey God and rebel against him by eating uh, from the fruit of the tree that God told them not to do. And so, At this point in the story of redemption, the broad story of the scriptures, humanity is in its its original sinless state. And it's in this occasion, in this condition, that God gives them a series of commands, including this cultural mandate. And these commands are designed to practically express what it means for us to be image bearers. If you look at the verses prior to these in 26-27, which Jim actually preached on, last week, I think it was last week, right? It was last week on the image of God. That's, that's a core part of who we are. I'm not going to rehash that. Go back and listen to that. Again, I believe it was last week, pretty sure. The weeks are blurring together these days. Uh, but go back and listen to that more about what it means to be in the image of God. But God gives these commands to help us then flesh out what it looks like to live out what it the image of God, image bearers. And these principles are often called by many uh, theologians creation ordinances, creation ordinances, and there are actually four of them. The cultural mandate is one. It speaks to our, our work and our labor, which is, again, what we're going to talk about this morning. The other is actually found immediately prior in our passage itself. Did you see that? God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the second of the creation ordinances is procreation, to make more little ones is one of the other ordinances that came pre-fall, a command that God gave us. And the next two come in the next chapter, uh, Sabbath, and then also marriage. And we're going to get to both of those topics uh, in coming weeks, so don't worry. We're not going to touch on all these things at at once. Um, But these are the four uh, creation ordinances. And it's really important that we pay attention to these. Like, think about this for a second. These are God's very first words to his creation. They're the very first words that he speaks to man. They're the first sentences that ever enter into the ear canals of human beings. See, God didn't speak to any of the other things that he had made on the other days of creation. He didn't create the sun, moon, and stars and then start talking to them or create plants or create the animals and fill the oceans and then start talking to them. No, he only talks directly and speaks directly to Adam and Eve, to humanity. And so we can't ignore these commands. We should look at these. We should take them seriously and think about them seriously. See, God's giving of the cultural mandate is part of the original, is part of the goodness of original creation. It's on that final day of creation. And that final day of creation is the climax of creation. It's the pinnacle. It's the peak. It's the best part. It's the finale. You look at verse 31 
which I read a moment ago. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. Up to this point in Genesis chapter 1, the other five days of creation leading up to this one at the end, of all of them, God says, it was good, it was good, it was good. But here, on the sixth day, man and woman is created in his image. They're given a job to do, and he says it was very good. It was very good. This is the pinnacle, the climax of creation. The mandate is given pre-fall, which means that by God's design, participating in this creative work of God, in this development of his creation, actually is one of the ways that we are most truly human in the way that he made us to be. Henry Van Til, uh, in, in his book, The Calvinistic Concept of Culture, writes this. The cultural urge, the will to rule and to have power, is increated. This is not demonic or satanic, but divine in origin. So in other words, our, our labor to continue God's creative work in the world is one of the primary ways that we image him, that we display the image of God in which he made us. See, we are— this, will, this is not a newsflash. We have bodies. We are embodied creatures. And so the image of God is not just about a state of being, but it's also about a state of doing. We have these bodies with which to do things. And so the occasion of the cultural mandate is pre-fall. Second, the nature of the cultural mandate is compassionate and selfless. Compassionate and selfless. At first glance, the words used in this passage are a little bit unnerving, aren't they? Maybe you thought that when we read it the first time, where God says to subdue and have dominion over. They sound domineering. They sound maybe even unkind, maybe even unjust. But I want to look at these two words for just a second. First, and I'll do this in reverse order, but first, the verb exercise dominion is used and other places in the Old Testament, this Hebrew word, it's used three times. I just want to point out four verses, but three times it's used in Leviticus chapter 25, which is teaching a master not to rule with harshness. For example, it says in verse 43 of, Genesis, or of Leviticus 25, you shall not rule, there's the word, you shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. And in Psalm 72, the psalmist uses this verse as well, and he's, it's a royal psalm, and so this is a, uh, a kingly thing. And, he, and so he's praying for the king of Israel, and he says, he asks not only for the king to have dominion, there's the word, from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth, but also he prays that the king would be a champion of the disadvantaged. Verses 2 to 4 of Psalm 72 say, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for your people in the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. And so we see in other contexts in the Old Testament that this verb exercise dominion is not one of ruthlessness or harshness, but it's one of compassion, connected to ideas of compassion. And the other verb, which actually comes first, subdue, is a, is a word here that refers to agriculture. In the next chapter of Genesis, chapter 2, which sort of recounts the story of creation all over again with slightly different words in a slightly different way, the author says that pre-creation, there was no man to work the ground. In verse 5, and then again in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
And so there's, there's a parallel in these two accounts of creation that subduing the earth and working the ground are intended to be understood as the same thing. And so that verse in chapter 2 helps us explain that the idea of subdue is really the idea of being a gardener. It's the idea of taking care of being a caretaker of the earth and a caretaker of animals. And, and that is what the cultural mandate is at its core and at its most literal sense. It's a calling to be a gardener, to be a caretaker. And it's a compassionate and selfless duty. It's not one that should be exploitive or one that should be self-indulgent. Poor is the gardener or the caretaker of an animal uh, who, who exploits. It's not the produce and the animals. They're not going to last long if that's the case. And this point is actually driven home by the fact that God explicitly and exclusively gives only plants to humans for food. You may have, have seen that. I had a hamburger yesterday, feeling a little guilty at the moment, right? As you read verses 29 and 30, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And he goes on. But the diet was vegetarian in the garden. And so again, it's not this idea of subduing and having dominion. It's not, hey, go and, and uh, destroy creation and kill all the animals and do whatever you want. No, it's, it's, it's a selfless, it's a humble, it's a sacrificial even uh, mandate and a calling. And we see that even more so in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. We are Christians. We're not a Jewish congregation. We're a Christian congregation, which means that we need to understand any topic in Scripture, including the cultural mandate, through the lens of Jesus, through the person and work of Jesus. He is our teacher. We are his followers. And see, Jesus, during his life, he demonstrated that the ultimate exercise of God-given power and God-given freedom and God-given ability to rule is humble servanthood. During his earthly ministry, he said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And later in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. One commentator uh, talking about uh, the chapter in Genesis and this idea of the cultural mandate says this, The human person is ordained over the remainder of creation, but for its profit well-being, and enhancement. The role of the human person is to see to it that the creation becomes fully the creation willed by God. And so the, the cultural mandate, the second point, what I want you to take away here, is that it is not about acquiring power or ruling as a dictator over other created things for our own good. And for our own good only, instead, the work that we do as culture makers should make all of creation, humanity, as well as the natural world, thrive and flourish. Should make it thrive and flourish. And that's the second point. The third, the aim of the cultural mandate, is the glory of God. This is also an element, uh, just to say, of the other three creation ordinances that I mentioned uh, a moment ago. All of them are designed to, to, to promote and proclaim the goodness and greatness and majesty of God. And so the cultural mandate, likewise, is about the glory of God, which means it's about making him famous. It's about make, promoting how awesome he is, not trying to make us famous, promote how awesome we think we are. Another uh, Dutch theologian, I'm going to say the word Dutch theologian a couple times here. 
Uh, but another Dutch theologian uh, who followed after Kuiper in the Netherlands, Herman Bavink, he writes this. The issue in Genesis, this book that we're looking at in chapter 1, the issue in Genesis is indeed whether humanity will want to develop independence on God, whether it will want to have dominion over the earth and to seek its salvation and submission to God's commandment, or whether violating that commandment and withdrawing from God's authority and law, it will want to stand on its own two feet, go its own way, and try its own luck. That's the issue in Genesis. And the whole book of Genesis is working out this cultural mandate and, and basically saying, are, are these people going to do this the way that God wants them to do it? Or are they going to kind of pioneer out on their own strength, try to do it in their own way? And the ultimate display of this, we'll get to, I think, eventually in this sermon series, is in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. If you're not familiar with that story, it's where all the people in the known world at that time, they're all there in the Middle East. They're all together. They all speak the same language. We think it's in the Middle East. I probably shouldn't have said that piece. There's, you know, it's a whole thing. Um, like where, the, where, all, where, where humanity started. But all the people are there together. They all speak one language, and they come up with this great idea. And they say this, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And listen to this. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so these people, these men and women in Genesis chapter 11, they are exercising this cultural mandate. They're exercising this God-given urge to create, but their goal, their aim, the telos of what they're hoping to accomplish is misplaced. That this building project explicitly is for themselves. It's for their glory. It's for their fame, not for God's. And Henry Van Til, who I quoted a few minutes ago, he says this, After sin entered the world, man has not lost his cultural urge, his instinct to rule, his love of power, his ability to form and to mold matter after his own will. So those things haven't been lost when, when humanity rebelled from God. Instead, he goes on, Man continues to multiply, to replenish the earth with its kind. He loves to work, to exercise dominion over the works of God. But, and this is the kicker, is that that activity that of the cultural mandate of continuing God's creative plans in the world, it has been distorted because of sin. It becomes selfish instead of selfless. It becomes about our glory rather than God's glory. So therefore, Van Til goes on and says, it is better to say that man is now producing a godless culture, that he is, has apostatized in his cultural striving. And so for us, on this side of the fall, on this side of Genesis chapter 3, the cultural mandate is still being fulfilled. Remember, it's increated. It's a part of who we are. We can't help but do it. It's part of our humanity. But we've hijacked it. We've taken it out of God's hands, out of its original aim and purpose, and we're now creating culture for our own glory, for ourselves, or maybe for our own tribe or our own people group's glory to the exclusion of others. See, our work and labor, in order to bring, or our work and labor to bring the material world to order, it should serve God. It should serve our neighbors, not just ourselves. And, and the cultural mandate, it obligates humanity to continue the creative process on God's behalf by responsibly developing the environment and the whole world until it is once again restored to its original goodness. That's kind of the project, including all that Jesus did, 
from Genesis 4 and the, the whole story of redemption is to get things back to the way they were in the garden. They were tarnished. They were ruined. They were spoiled. And the work is to get them back to the garden. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, the Apostle Paul writes that God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, as followers of Jesus living in a fallen and broken world, the cultural mandate is a part of this ministry. It's a part of this ministry of reconciliation. We seek, as followers of Jesus, to bring reconciliation to all three fundamental relations. We seek to reconcile people to God. We seek to reconcile people to one another, and we seek to reconcile people to creation, to the world. The story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation is a story of reconciliation, but it's also a story of development. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. This was pointed out to me in a sermon, uh, not personally, but by Tim Keller via, via the, uh, the AirPods years ago, and it's always stuck with me. Humanity begins by enjoying perfect relationship with God in a garden. And it ends with the people of God enjoying perfect relationship with God in a garden city. The New Jerusalem is a city. There is development there. It is progressing towards something. Jesus will return to set the world to rights. And the beauty, what's so exciting about this cultural mandate, this thing, that, this work that we've been given to do, is that we're invited by God's grace to participate in God's work to restore creation again to its original goodness, to this garden city to come. Pastor uh, Philip Graham Riken, who used to be a pastor at 10th Presbyterian uh, in, in the city uh, and is no longer there. He's at Wheaton College these days, but he has a little booklet called What is the Christian Worldview? That's really, really great. Um, but he summarizes the cultural mandate in a really nice way. This is what he writes. We have a God-given responsibility to develop the possibilities of creation in ways that reveal our maker's praise, and thus to fill the whole earth with his glory. We are to do this in science, politics, business, sports, literature, film, and all the arts. It's not just one part of life that ought to glorify God, but all of life in all its fullness. This is the way that things were meant to be. And so that's the aim of the cultural mandate. So the fourth point, the mood of the cultural mandate, the mood. And the mood of the cultural mandate is imperative. It's imperative. And if you're not a grammar nerd, you're thinking mood, like emotion? Like what are we talking about? Like it's angry? Like it's sad? No. In grammar, the mood is the form that a verb takes to show how it's to be regarded, how it's to be understood. And the imperative mood is a command. It's not a question. That's the interrogative. It's not a wish. It's not a statement of fact. It's, 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 a, it's a command. And so the cultural mandate then is not a suggestion. It's not a suggestion. God isn't saying, hey, here in the garden pre-fall, hey, if you want to do this thing, you got copious amounts of free time, go for it. No, it's a command. He gives it to us as a command, just like he does procreation and Sabbath and marriage. Dutch theologian, told you I would say that again. Uh, Klaus Schilder, who was a little bit after uh, Kuiper and Bavink, he said this, and this is a little bit of a punch in the gut, but listen. He said, renunciation of cultural participation for its own sake is always sinful. Whew. Harsh words. And that is a little bit tough 
to hear. And I think as we think about that, like, really, if I'm not participating in this, like, it's always sinful? Like, I'm not sure about that. But hear these words from Jesus. I actually think this sounds a little bit like Jesus here. In John chapter 17, which is often called Jesus' high priestly prayer, it's on the night that he's with his disciples before he's betrayed and crucified. Some of the, in my opinion, best chapters in all of Scripture, John 13 to 17. Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. See, as followers of Jesus, what our teacher, our master, and we as his apprentices, what he is saying here is that we are neither of the world, but we're also not separate from the world. Which means that on the one hand, as Christians, we should not conform to the world, those things that are hostile to God, and we should not become so enmeshed with them that no one can tell the difference between us and our neighbors who don't know Christ. We should not be of the world. There should be a difference. Yet, on the other hand, we must not withdraw from the world and so isolate ourselves and just stand there and throw rocks from the safety of our Christian strongholds. We should not be separate from the world either. We're neither of the world nor separate from it. And in order to fulfill the cultural mandate, in order to participate in this creative work that God's doing in the world, we need to hold this intention. It's a tension we have to embrace a little bit that we're neither of nor separate from. During his Sermon on the Mount in Jesus chapter—or in Jesus chapter 5, that would be interesting. During his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Those are really striking metaphors. One of the realities of that is that salt, in order for it to have impact, it must touch unsalted food makes sense. And for light to have an effect, it must be in close proximity to the darkness. It has to be in close proximity. We can't be of, but we can't be totally separate from either. Jeremiah uh, chapter 29, I know I'm going all over the place a little bit this morning, but I want you to see that this idea of the cultural mandate is all through scripture. Jeremiah chapter 29, God's ancient people are in a really bad spot. If you know anything about the Bible, all through the Old Testament, they're rebelling from God. And finally, it's caught up to them. And God uh, has punished them. He's used a, a foreign superpower to come in, to conquer, to destroy them, to destroy the city of Jerusalem. But despite their being captured and moved to a foreign land, being forced to live not where they want to, among a pagan people, people who were hostile towards them, people who hated them, God reminded them and told them not to neglect the cultural mandate. This is what he says again in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here you go. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It's a really powerful verse, I think, when you consider the context of where God's people were when they heard that. To be sure, we need a lot of wisdom and strength and grace with each other 
to learn how to be in the world, but not of the world, to be agents of reconciliation, to redeem culture, to restore creation to its original goodness. We need a lot of wisdom to do this, but it is the calling we've been given. It's the vocation that we have been given to participate in. So as I close, let me ask you a couple of questions here. First of all, you might be thinking, does the cultural mandate mean that you should be like Abraham Kuyper, that you should be super busy, do lots of crazy stuff, remain, reform, or start a whole bunch of major cultural institutions? Maybe. I don't know. For some of you, for some of you it might. For some of you, God might be calling you to do some big, big things. But what I want to encourage you to think about is what spheres of life do you already occupy? Age and stage of your, of your life, spheres, whether it's in business or education or otherwise, what, what spheres of life are you already in? And how could you continue God's creative work in the world in those spaces? For some, it might be in the marketplace. Maybe it means caring for your patients more than you care about the bottom line. Maybe it means developing ethical and non-discriminatory business practices. Maybe it means, if you're a teacher, crafting a killer lesson for your students. Or maybe it means developing systems and processes for your company that are more efficient. All of those things are good. They're for the well-being of many. So it may be in the marketplace, but for others it might be in your families or your homes or your communities. Things as simple as cooking and sharing a meal with those in need. Hosting a well-crafted gathering to connect neighbors who don't know each other. Planting a community garden or creating art and music and poetry that you can share with others. And the list could go on and on and on and on and on, but those are a few things that maybe come to mind. See, fulfilling the cultural mandate as a follower of Jesus isn't necessarily about scale. It's not necessarily about scale. Instead, it's about direction. It's about continuing God's creative work in the world and taking the raw materials that God has given us, he's given you specifically, and rearranging them in order to create beautiful things that push our world a degree closer to the garden city to come. There's a Nashville-based singer-songwriter named uh, Ben Rector, and he opens his 2015 album that's called Brand New with a song called Make Something Beautiful. Which, in my interpretation, I don't know if this is true of him, though I, I do know that he is a person of faith, though he doesn't write explicitly Christian music per se. I see this as an opening prayer to this album. It's a prayer that he would faithfully fulfill his duty as an image bearer and create good, God-glorifying music. Listen to these words. Please let me make something beautiful, a thing that reminds us there's good in the world, a thing that reminds us there's still something out there worth fighting for. Because it feels like the world's gone crazy, spinning faster and cheaper than ever before, and it feels like nobody's concerned that it's getting worse. Let it be something wonderful. Let it be something beautiful. Please let me make something beautiful, a thing that reminds us there's good in the world. And so Liberty Church Collinswood, my exhortation to you this morning is let's use our creativity and let's fulfill our responsibility as God's image bears, and let's seek to make something beautiful to the praise of God's glorious grace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem. 
on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.